Welcome to the Hardwood Hustle, powered by PGC Basketball. We believe in the value of a coach. We're here to educate, empower, and encourage you to lead like never before. It takes some work to get the pieces of our teams to come together and complement each other. In this week's episode, we discuss what factors into picking your starting five, managing your rotations, and how to get everyone bought into the team's success. Let's get started. Welcome back to Hardwood Hustle. We've got the full crew here today, TJ, Lisa, and myself. Lisa, congrats on the new job. We're excited to talk more about that later. But today, we're going to talk about building out your rotations and your depth charts. And let me start us off with this thought, which is, TJ and Lisa, oftentimes, it's not about putting your five best individual players on the court. It's about putting the five players that are going to fit together best and let them play together. And sometimes coaches are just finding the best players, and that's not always the best recipe. Lisa, what are your initial thoughts on that? Uh, My initial thought was as a coach, I'm thinking, how do I want to start the game? And I think maybe even early in the season, you don't know what that looks like for whatever group you have, but that's what you're looking for. If you're starting, you pick your starting five and then you realize, wow, we don't have the energy or we don't have the defensive intensity. And like, if defense is your um, identity and your core, you might need to start a more defensive lineup just to, uh, solidify that for your team and the mental space of this matters to me as a coach. And this is why these people are starting. And if you want to start, then you have to bring more intensity and energy on defense, right? Um, Focusing on what that communication looks like, um, the effort that you might need. um, But again, if you want to start fast, then you start your faster players who are going to get down the floor, who again are committed to the things that you want. And so I just think about uh, just going back to your philosophy, your general whether it's offensive or defensive, like, well, who's going to accomplish the things that you're trying to do in the first five minutes of the game? Yeah. And then also who, who you might leave for bringing off the bench. I know we'll talk about that more later, but to your point, it's not always the five best players and it's not always the five people who are going to play the most. Yeah. That's a good, good opening thought. And TJ, you know, you've been a head college coach for 20 years and this is probably one of your strengths, which is how to fit the right puzzle pieces together push the right buttons, play the right rotations. Uh, yeah. So tell what do you, what do you think about this? Yeah, I think it's, it's definitely something that coaches need to pay attention to. I, probably the most stat or, you know, the analytics of putting rotations together, the NBA uses this a ton and that's probably the one I'm most jealous of. I wish I had more of that at the college level and we do have some access to it, but in-depth dive into it because I really think that it does matter. And we see this even just not even diving into the analytics. You can just watch it, you know, like how long have they struggled to figure out where does Russell Westbrook fit in? I mean, we know this guy is a triple double machine. He was an MVP, you know, like all of this type of stuff we know about him, but they really can't figure out how to fit him into certain, uh, certain just like, rotations and that is at the NBA that all of us trickle down we feel that same thing and you know a good example was this year for us we um we had some post player issues really the last couple of years we've had some post player issues and we've had some people that looked the part and maybe necessarily didn't produce the part and we went on a 16 game win streak and that was when we switched to a 6-1 five man and the average 6 
you know, six, eight, six, nine, five man in our league, we went to a six, one, five man. And it honestly just came down to what we're talking about here is that, um, it, he didn't, he didn't win the spot traditionally at the five, but overall it was the best mesh of people. And we started tracking that. And that was our most successful lineup by far production wise. There were some categories that were down, but overall point wise, um, just, you know, productivity, um, all of that stuff. It, it, it really changed the way we played. And on, I think a lot of coaches are fearful of making those changes sometimes because you're like, well, I know that player's better than this player. And you can't look, we don't play that. We play a holistic game where it's ever flowing, ever changing, the parts meshing together, the pH of the water, like all of that stuff just matters. And you can't really put your thumb on it sometimes. And this is where the instincts of a coach really matter. Yeah, when you were talking, that that's immediately what I thought about, which is a lot of coaches are fearful to make a decision like that because they, the optics of it. And, you know, TJ and Lisa, when I think about this topic too, I think about a lot of NBA teams who might win the offseason and they build these these super teams. I remember, you remember when the Lakers signed Dwight Howard and Steve Nash a few years ago to add to Kobe and Gasol and Artest. And everybody's like handing them the championship already. Or when the Heat constructed their roster with Wade and LeBron and Bosch, like those those three play like three different positions. But sometimes, you know, it's about it's it's like or the and you know recently the Suns adding in Bradley Beal to Booker and Durant. It looks really good on paper, and maybe it comes to fruition really good. But I'm always thinking about. What's the best lineup? Like, do we have do we have shooters? Do we have a, a ball hand? Do we have strong defensive play? Obviously, it'd be great to put five players out there that are very well rounded, uh, but that's not always the case. And so, getting the complementary pieces is so important. Last example, I know I'm throwing a lot at you, just getting excited, but Manu Ginobili. I mean, the Spurs and Popovich did this brilliantly before it was like the cool thing to do when he was bringing Manu off the bench. And now guess what? Manu is getting minutes against the other team's second rotation. And he's providing some scoring punch to that. Whereas if he's playing with Duncan, he might not get as many of those looks. Now they're going to close the game together. Those are all the things I think coaches got to be thinking about. Well, and I was, as you do that, Sam, talking about like Manu and what he brought and the buy-in that he would have had to – be his best in that role. And I think sometimes we overemphasize the starting five, sometimes because we're we're dangling it as a carrot for our players of earn the starting five spot, be a starter. Everybody wants that as like a motivating factor. But we talk a lot about our culture and um, developing leadership and what that looks like. It doesn't always come from your best player. And so how do – I think the best coaches – show every single person how they bring value and especially those people coming off the bench because then you really feel at the end of the day when you've accomplished a team goal when those five people on the court you know finish off a game for you everybody who's coming out on the court to celebrate know that they also played a role in it and so it just feels like a team a true team accomplishment um and so i think that goes into your culture what we're talking about of each player bringing value talking about it 
saying, here's what we're trying to do as a team when we're out on the floor. And here's how people are going to come in and out to accomplish our goal or to execute what we're trying to do or why somebody's coming in on a special teams play or a defensive play or why you're going to go offense defense at the end of the game. Right. Like all these things play into that. And so, um, who you have. And like you said, complimenting each other. Uh, I probably would just, would just add that knowing, knowing what your players like to do and, and what they want to do and what they're good at, because sometimes we do, we're trying to always develop the all around player, but who's going to be your shooter in the corner? You know, who's going to be your ball handler um, in the end of game situations who you trust with the ball in your hands. And you don't have to have your shooter in the corner. doesn't have to be that ball handler. And do they know that, you know, and and do they know that, hey, it's better for you to pass the ball if you don't have a shot than to try and create something. And so this just comes back down to what we've talked a lot about, too, is just just roles and knowing your role and buying into it and feeling valued in that role. And then also working on develop your game as you go. Lisa, you bring up the important part of the conversation, like part one is identifying your players, strengths, weaknesses, who compliments who part two is. Probably the harder part. How do I get them to buy into this vision I have as a coach? It doesn't really matter if my players don't buy into it. And TJ, I know you've been doing a lot of work on this, some deep work on like leadership and buy-in. You know, we have our coaching clinics coming up here in the fall. I know we're excited about. So, and you, and you do this really well again as a coach is getting that buy-in. So go ahead and speak to that. Yeah, well, I think that's a big part of it. I mean, the buy-in part there's you know we make these decisions in a silo and i think they can be really detrimental if we don't look at the holistic picture and so i mean for an example like what lisa was talking about like a shooter in the corner well if that player is a non-shooter it changes the floor and the reads for the driver i mean that's just a simple like thing but we don't always take that we just put that player the best player in the corner or whatever and so there are so many working parts to all of this whether it's chemistry and the way that they act and connect whether it's the way the floor looks when different players are on the floor um whether they start or whether they don't start what that does to their ego i mean there is just so many dynamics that go into getting the right people on the court and any of those decisions made in a silo not taking all the other things in consideration can be can be a problem and that's why that's why coaching's hard is because you have to look at all of those angles when you're making those decisions and then when you make those decisions the part two like you said Sam is we got to get them to buy into your decisions and we have got so many examples but I think it's even harder we've used NBA examples when you get down to younger ages because they're continuing to develop the player they are at the beginning of the season, maybe not the player there at the end of the season, even in the NBA. I mean, one of the, you, we have plenty of examples of a guy like Jeremy Lin, who was on the bench, not even playing until he got thrust into this starting point guard role and became Lin Sanity. And it was like, oh, where did this guy come from? And I don't think this guy came from out of nowhere. I think he just had never been able to play that role. And I've done that before where I put a player on the floor and I change their role and what they're asked to do. And they step up to the plate and they can do that really well. And, and so, you know, and I've talked about this, I was looking, you know, I have a player this year who's really good, got a chance to play at a really high level. And we were watching the NBA summer league out there. And that is an evolution in itself. This player used to be the best player on the floor that had the ball in their hands 80% of the time. 
Now they got to go try and make it at a higher level in the NBA, and they might just be asked to stand in the corner and knock down shots and defend. And so their whole role changes and what they're asked to do. And we're like, well, that player used to put up 30 and now they're only getting eight or nine. Well, their role changed, you know? And so, man, I mean, I think this is such a complex problem and I wish there was a simple formula to it. But I think the most important thing for coaches to know is this is a work in progress, like constantly, but it's a problem worth solving because when you get it right, your team has a chance to be at its best. Yeah, really well said. And and I think a part of the conversation too is what what system do you run? Like what's your offensive and defensive system and then fitting those players in. I, I've always liked to play more guards if, and the key word is if, they have toughness and rebounding. So like what you referenced earlier, TJ, you're you know, I think you're referring to Kendall playing the five or Spud, I don't know which one you're referring to, but they they brought they bring toughness to your team. I watched y'all play a few times, right? There's some physicality. They can get in there and bang a little bit in the uh, inside with rebounding. You're not sacrificing a ton. Of course, you'd love to have a six eight five man, uh, but that wasn't the case this year. You had some injuries, so you had to do what you you know what what you're you had to play the um, hand that you were dealt. But I, I why back to my statement. I like playing more guards because they're a little more versatile. If they can, they can pass it, they can handle it, they can shoot it. Like the more versatile a player we can put on the floor, the more we can do as a team uh, on offense and defense. We can switch more screens on defense. Might be able to play a little faster. I've always been a proponent of playing two point guards together as long as they complement. Again, you can't make that a decision in silo. So, you know, those are some of the other things I think about just the complementary parts, but also the versatility of those parts. And Sam, I would add like that is your preference, right? Yeah. And I think I probably align with your preference, but there are other teams that sometimes you watch them play offensively and they're dang anemic. Like you're thinking I could coach better offense than this at some really high level of basketball. But that's armchair quarterback. What I think people don't know is like, well, what did they need to recruit to? Maybe they couldn't get the most skilled players, but they could get big athletes. So now they go out there and they try and beat you on defense. You know, I mean, a team like Houston is probably not a great example because they're skilled offensively, too. But San Diego State, um, you know, they have some offensive skill about them. But what do they do best? They defend you. They rebound the ball. They're trying to win another way. That's very different than the way Gonzaga tries to win. That's very different than the way Virginia tries to win. They all have different things and different issues they're facing. But at the end of the day, you know, you got to score more points than your opponent. And some people choose to be big and athletic and guard you and whatever. Some people value skill more than other teams. And I think that's another part of the equation that we haven't even talked about is who are you working with? Because you can have all the preferences in the world, all the you know best coaching ideas and styles, but that's not your personnel. You've got to find another way to win. And just thinking about what I experienced this year, you know, we wanted to play big. Like that was the preference um, of just what we had set up within our offense, who we thought our personnel was going to be to start the year. You say, okay, we want to play this four and five and we want to play bigger. And we didn't start the games well playing bigger. We maybe we thought more of certain players and what they could do than what they were really producing. And so having to pivot, I know we talked about this earlier on on episodes too, but just having to pivot that starting lineup and we went smaller at the four 
to be able to play the style that we wanted and shifted everybody and kind of shifted what we were doing on offense because of that. So that speaks directly to what we wanted to do and maybe what we, you know, where we were going in the future with how we wanted to play. Um, but we couldn't do it at that time. And so, and think about when you have injuries too, and you have to make an, an adjustment. And I would say that, um, when I think about playing smaller or playing bigger, at least at the college level, uh, one thing for me is the four, I think is a really important position because they got to, sometimes they're going to have to guard a big and sometimes they're going to have to guard a guard. And so who can do that the best, who can defend and rebound at the four position, um, knowing what their matchups are going to be against your opponents in conference, out of conference. Uh, I think that's just a, a, such a key piece to, you know, defensive philosophy, again, how important is that to you? But who's going to be versatile in that? And then be able to fit that person in offensively. Um, but I just think that position we're talking about, big or small, I think the four is really the one that carries a lot of that weight of how you can play. Good, Lisa. And I, I agree. The Lisa, or excuse me, TJ, you brought up this point earlier, which is one player, I think you used the Jeremy Lin example, a player in one system and a player, that same player goes to another system, could really thrive. The most loud example I could give is Nikola Jokic, who some are saying is the best player in the world. And I think the system that Mike Malone has built in Denver for him has allowed him to become that. I think you put Jokic in a different system, he's, he's still going to be a good player, but if you put him in a heavy set system like Doc Rivers that ran with Celtics, the Clippers, with with Philly, ball-dominant point guard and Paul or James, like, I don't know. Again, Jokic had a great year, so that, that may sound like crazy I'm saying that. But Jokic is allowed to bring the ball up. He's allowed to pass it. He's allowed to play in the high post and play to his strengths. And if, if you just stuck him on the block – he'd have some effectiveness, just wouldn't be the same player. And so I do think a lot about this is identifying, you know, how a player in your system can be successful. Yeah. And there's plenty of examples where it doesn't work, but you think it might work, right? Like you, you, like that's a great example of the Denver Nuggets. And, but I think we would all say the Celtics have been trying to figure it out for a while, right? They know they've got a ton of talent, but they haven't quite gotten that right. The Brooklyn Nets, when they put Kyrie, James Harden, and Durant, I mean, some people will say three of the top five, six players in the world, and they did not mesh, could not get it done. And, you know, hey, Dame Lillard to the Heat. I don't know. Is Jimmy Butler just such an alpha that, you know, playing second fiddle to somebody else doesn't work? I don't know. Like, those are the kind of things that I know we're talking NBA, but those matter at any level of basketball. Does it fit? Is the chemistry right? Do they complement each other? And uh, all these super teams, as many uh, that we say have done well, there's probably three for every one that haven't gone so well. And I think that speaks to the topic that we're speaking about right now. Well, I would throw out this question too. If, if, you look at your, especially if you're a high school coach and you get what you get, or you have what you have at your college team and you're looking at like, Hey, my best players need to play. I got five, five of them. They need to be starting, but they don't complement each other. TJ or Sam, like, how do you handle that? Like that to me, that seems like a culture thing where you got to start talking to them about roles and um, playing as a team as right away. If that's not something they're 
they're maybe naturally thinking about because maybe they're all thinking score or maybe they're all thinking pass. Ego, ego plays. I mean, we talked about that before we press record, just, you know, as, as coaches, like ego plays a part in it. And if you don't have your, your fingers on that and, and speaking into that every day, it only takes one disgruntled player on your team. It may or may not be in your rotation can ruin the whole season. One, one quick example of that, I don't know that it'll ever come public. I actually think it will soon. But Jordan Poole is no longer with the Golden State Warriors. I think that's for a reason. I think he had a hard time buying into his role. And if you read between the lines, there there were players in their playoff run when Steph gets up and talks in front of the team, which he never does. Like, don't get on the bus unless you're bought. Like, I think he's with the Washington Wizards now because of not accepting a role. Maybe along with, you know, getting punched and stuff like that probably played. But the point is, getting your role buy-in is, is critical to all this conversation or none of it even matters. Yeah, I was – we were tracking the same way. I mean, Golden State, good and bad, is probably an example, right? Like, so that whole thing of pool not necessarily working, whatever, that's a great example. Also, we saw them win multiple championships having multiple lineups. Remember they had – what I don't know what they called them, their death squad or whatever, where they went small – and like Draymond was at the five, but they had a whole other lineup that they went big with, which I really like if you're capable of pulling that off is you have one lineup that can play big, one lineup that can play small. Now, I think everybody knew they were going to close the game with their small lineup, but they also bought time over that 48 minutes and, and over the course of a season with a whole nother lineup. And then we look at them this year with the pool example you just gave and they really couldn't figure out the right lineup. And that's the best coaches in the world with some of the best players in the world not being able to figure it out. And for us that are coaching at lower levels, whether it's middle school, high school, college, whatever it might be, like that is the same problem we're trying to figure out that they're trying to figure out is how to get our best team, our best lineup, get buy-in on the floor, like all of that stuff combined. And even at the highest levels of basketball, it's not an easy thing to solve. Well, and we haven't talked about this yet, but I, I know this happens maybe on the women's side a little bit more. What about when your best player doesn't doesn't think they're the best player? When your player that you need to score 15 a game doesn't shoot enough? Uh, and maybe they're jumping in from one role to another. How do you guys encourage or set that up when you need people to step up into roles and build their confidence or be players – uh, key players that maybe they haven't been in the past or, or continue to shy away from. Do you pivot away from them or do you continue to invest in what you need to, you know, hopefully um, bring out of them throughout the season? Yeah. And this is where uh, this may sound like a little bit of a soapbox, but I know sometimes with PGC coaching, people can be like, oh, they're a little soft. There's a little fluff, you know, because we talk so much about culture and leadership and all that stuff. But Lisa, what you're speaking to right here is, Look, you're talking about winning, like getting a player to be your best player, to be confident, whatever, like that goes down to culture and leadership and player development, the mindset of a player, right? Like those things matter. And when you become just about winning and you don't think about things like that, about a player who, you know, the best thing that could happen to your team is this young lady that thinks all of a sudden believes in herself 
and Belize comes confident and now they're ready to take on that role. Now everything thrives because of it. And that's why you can't look at coaching in a silo. That's why we talk about all of these things mattering, whether it's player development, whether it's systems and strategies, whether it's master teaching, culture or leadership, like all of those things come together. If you just look at systems and strategies in a silo and just put your five best players on the floor, never get the confidence out of that young lady, never find the culture mesh within your offense or defense, never find leaders to step up and take that offense or defense to the next level. You're going to tap out at a low place. And that's why all of these things combined factor in to making the best lineup, the best team, the best players and rotations that throughout the course of the game. But you can't look at it in a silo. The culture, the leadership and player development, all of that stuff matters when making these decisions. Yeah, well said, TJ and Lisa, and, and just some closing thoughts. So coaches, I think if you're listening, hopefully we, we're triggering some new ideas, reaffirming some, some things you already think you know. And it's not always about playing the five best players and we need to define what best means. Sometimes you might have your top two scorers, a great distributor, a great re your best rebounder and your best defender. Those may be the five that play best and your third best score may be the one coming off the bench or you might play your top three scores. Obviously that's for you to decide. And amidst all of that is the art of coaching, which is getting buy-in getting players to accept a role and let the team thrive with whatever role that is. So that's TJ, that's Lisa, and I am Sam. We are the Harwood Hustle. Thanks again for tuning into this episode of the Harwood Hustle, where we believe in the value of a coach. Be sure to check us out on Twitter and Instagram at Hardwood underscore hustle to stay up to date on the latest episodes and share your thoughts with our coaching community. From the Harwood Hustle team, thanks again. We can't wait to be with you again next week.